Hey, welcome to In The Shift, a podcast for when life and faith go off script. My name is Michael Frost and we are well into 2019 already, we're a month in, and that means In The Shift has now actually been out and about for about three months, which is, uh, which is great. It's been a fun ride so far and I'm looking forward to loads of great stuff coming up this year. Just a reminder that if you want to receive a monthly email from me, from In The Shift, uh, which I'm calling Shifty Times. You can sign up at intheshift.com. Just chuck your email address in there and you'll uh, get signed up to that mailing list. And each month it'll come out to you and include some brief reflections from me, some connections and links to books and some other resources that I think kind of relate to what we're talking about. Uh, you might find helpful and interesting, I hope so. And also a bit of an update just on what's coming out within the shift, the blog and the podcast and anything else that, that comes along throughout the course of the year. So if you want a bit of that, if that sounds like a bit of you, then head to intheshift.com and you can sign up there. Um, how was that? How was that self-promotion I just did? Was that okay? Uh, I'm going to be honest with you. I find that part of this uh, quite hard. Quite, I have this internal allergic reaction uh, to promoting myself in any kind of way, which when you're trying to put something out because you think it might be helpful for people, is like it's a bit of a conundrum. Anyway, I'm giving it a crack, right? That was just me sharing with you about how I feel about that bit of honesty to start off with. That's good, eh? Yeah. Um, okay, so in the last episode, let's let's move on from, from all of that awkwardness. In the last episode, but I do believe in what I'm uh, doing, and I'd love you to sign up for the thing. I would, actually, genuinely. I just don't like telling you that. But here I am making this even more awkward than it was before. But that's all right. On we go. Right, what was I saying? In the last episode. Yes. We began unpacking certain ideas that we might hold about God and why these are important and about the fact that within the Christian tradition, or we might even say within the Christian scripture, the sacred text of the Christian tradition itself, there are actually a range of ideas about what it means when we use God language. Like what kind of God are we talking about and what do we mean? When we use that word, when we use words like the divine or like spirit, uh, and then we talked a bit about how this shapes some of our views about fundamental reality itself. You know, when we talk about God, no matter what language we use, we're usually starting to talk about what we think lies at the heart of all of life and the cosmos. And this really matters because it shapes how we live, how we interpret our lives, the ethics we hold, the values we create, and the kinds of communities and societies that we build. You can see this playing out around the world at the moment. Different visions of fundamental reality radically shaping different ways of building human society and community or tearing it apart. So in the last episode, if you haven't listened to that, that was kind of the start of this little series we're doing, uh, talking about how we see God and what we think of God. So in that episode, episode six, I suggested that some of the views of God found within the Bible, for example, are shaped by the social, cultural and religious context of the day. And actually that some of them uh, can be a bit problematic along the way and sometimes even quite outdated, you know, God is not an old man in the sky. Uh, and yet on the other hand, there are also ideas that push us forward or ideas present within the text that push us forward beyond the old tribal gods of the ancient world speak to us maybe of something more profound, the idea of God as the source of life, of beingness itself, of um, of the idea of God that is shaped by the New Testament metaphor of, for God of love, for example. So as I mentioned last time, this does leave us with the question of what to do with some parts of the sacred text of the Christian tradition, what we call the Bible. Uh, and in particular, what do we do with the quite violent portrayals of God that can be found there? 
And not just the violence of the divine, of God, but there are also violent stories about human people, usually men, that seem to be endorsed by the story, storytellers, you know, this, these violent characters who are held up as heroes, uh, apparently for us to look up to, perhaps in some kind of way. But what do we do with this now? Um, because either this tells us that the Bible is stupid and outdated, not worth reading, because it tells us about this horrible view of God and of humankind. Or we can ask the question, maybe, as to whether there's a different approach to these stories. Not, approach, not approaches that eliminate the problem, but that come at it from a different perspective. So in these next few episodes, I want to explore some of this. I want to look at some of what Phyllis Tribble was the first to call a number of years ago, uh, Texts of Terror. And uh, she, she wrote a book called that, uh, which looked specifically at some stories of, uh, of violence, horrible stories that are in uh, the scriptural text uh, of treatment of women. Uh, and so she coined this phrase, Texts of Terror. Uh, and so what we're going to do is we're going to use that phrase over the next few episodes and we're going to look at three types of violent texts. Uh, so in this episode, we're going to look at tribal violence. Uh, in the next episode, we're going to look at patriarchal violence. And then in the third episode, we're going to look at divine violence. Does that sound like a great time? Actually, I hope it will be uh, helpful and interesting. So this is episode seven of In The Shift. Let's get into it. <laughs> So today's episode is on these texts of terror, and in particular, the tribal violence of scripture. And of course, the three themes that we're exploring over the next few episodes, tribal violence and patriarchal and also divine violence, are all interconnected. As you read through the biblical text, there are all of these wars between nations and tribes, and also at an individual and personal level. But it's often intertwined with these themes of male violence in particular, sometimes specifically against women. Uh, and then also divine violence and what it is that God is apparently saying or supporting or actively uh, doing. But I want to begin by thinking about a few types of stories that we find within the Christian scripture. You know, these are, as I've said already, the sacred texts of the Christian tradition, and there's all sorts of discussion we could have about what we even mean by that. Uh, but I hope some ideas of that will emerge as we go along. Uh, and now there are actually, there are so many violent stories and accounts of war in the Old Testament that we simply don't have time to go through all of that, um, which itself is a bit of a problem. <laughs> but open it up and pick up a page uh, and start flicking and you won't have to scan for long before you end up in some kind of violent passage of some kind. Uh, and so, you know, these include all sorts of things. Some of the kinds of violence we see in the text are even just enmeshed within the laws, so the laws of ancient Israel. So if you don't know the story of, of the Old Testament text, it's telling the story of the emergence of this nation of Israel who have this particular relationship with Yahweh, who they see as being the most high God, the God of all, the one true God. Uh, and they have these laws, as they come out of slavery in Egypt where they've been in slavery for 400 years and a story told in the Exodus uh, they are given these laws to govern what it means for them to be this new people, this nation. And um, at times within those laws, there's some pretty violent things that go on. There are commands to stone people uh, for certain sins that for whatever reason are seen as being particularly egregious. Um, so that's an interesting start, isn't it? At least to our modern ears. Uh, then, you know, a part of that central story of the coming out of slavery and then into the promised land, uh, the land of Canaan, 
which becomes known as modern-day Israel or Palestine. Uh, this is an interesting story itself. The, the people of Israel, the ancient Israelites, the Hebrews, uh, are rescued from slavery in Egypt by God through this character Moses. They're led out into the desert, into the wilderness. And then they are called, told, to cross over the River Jordan and into the land that has been given to them. Which is lovely, isn't it? That's a lovely story. They're into the promised land and there are lots of lovely stories and songs and all sorts of things about that idea. But the problem is there are already people living over the river in that land. And um, many of the stories of the conquest of this area include, you know, the wiping out, or at least the way the stories tell them, the wiping out of all of these people, of men, of women, of children, even of animals, and if we're going to be honest, if we're going to use modern language, this is the language of, of genocide or of ethnic cleansing. Um, and this sits right at the heart even of one of the central identity stories in the Old Testament. So that's troubling in its own way, right? Or it should be, I think. Uh, I'm going to look at some of the reasons why maybe uh, Christians find ways to make it not so troubling, but we'll, we'll look at that in a moment. Uh, you know, there's a story of Jericho, which which I learned when I was a kid. I mean, I had I had I grew up reading these Old Testament comics. This is this is life within a, a wonderful um, Christian family, and my parents really wanted me to you know know the stories of the Bible and stuff like that. And so there were these Old Testament comics I used to read. Uh, and now I think back to the stories, and I'm like, man, those are some serious stories. <laughs> were they good stories? I'm not sure they were good stories. People's heads getting chopped off. People, you know, it's um, it's pretty full on, isn't it? And <laughs> Uh, there's one particular story, the story of the of Jericho and the walls of Jericho, uh, and this is a great good story because they um they come up to the city and they march around it seven times and all the walls fall down and you're like oh that's so amazing, um and they go in and then they absolutely slaughter everybody that's in there, you're like oh ha, ha, that's an awkward finish to a kid story because it's not a kid story if we're honest, uh, it's brutal and it's part of this. You know, told from the story of these slaves who have been liberated now entering into this promised land that God is giving them, it sounds lovely, but if you were to tell the story from the other angle, uh, maybe, maybe it would come out slightly differently. And then as you go on through the Old Testament, there are repeated wars between uh, the nation of Israel or the tribes of Israel, however it's uh, sort of set up at the time in the story, and, and other nations. Um, King David, who's your, like your archetypal hero of the ancient kings of Israel, you know, he's the one they they look to the, after his time. They're always looking back to King David as kind of the kind of king that we really want. And he's, you know, he's he became famous with the story of David and Goliath, which again, wonderful kid story about how he throws rocks at this giant's head and then cuts his head off. Um, and David leads his people in many successful battles. You know, he's a bloody warrior. And... On and on and on these stories go. And in all of this war eventually results in the fall of Jerusalem towards the end of the story of the Old Testament. And uh, Babylon, who was led at that time by a king called Nebuchadnezzar, defeats uh, Jerusalem and Jerusalem falls and is burned and the temple is destroyed. And the, many of the people who lived there are taken off into exile. Uh, many of them taken into exile back into the city of Babylon and many others scattered throughout that part of the world. 
we read about this particular story all over the place uh, in certain texts within the Old Testament. Uh, and there are Psalms that are written in this season as well. So after they go into exile in, in Babylon, there's this Psalm made famous uh, perhaps by that great hit by Boney M. But there's a Psalm that begins, Psalm 137, that begins uh, with By the Rivers of Babylon, where we set, sat and wept when we remembered Zion. Um, there on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? And what you've got here is a people who have been brutalized and, you know, in this, in this story they are on the receiving end of the brutality. They have been absolutely uh, run over by this empire this empire of Babylon, and many of their friends and family have been slaughtered, uh, many of their children will have been killed, and they've been captured and put into slavery in a foreign land. They have no temple, they have no, um, you know, way of, formal way of worshipping God according to the laws that they have. What are they supposed to do with all of this? And and so this kind of psalm emerges at this particular time. They're in by the rivers of Babylon and they're weeping as they remember where they have come from and they are being tormented now by their their captors, by their enslavers. And then towards the end of that psalm, you know, a part of the psalm that didn't make that uh, the, the catchy song, hit song of the 70s, uh, is, this, um, is this passage of, of revenge towards the end of the psalm where it says, Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. So that's that's pretty intense, right? That's that's taken the intensity up a notch. And what you can see is the people here in anguish and in sadness and in grief, but also in anger, who want violence and revenge, and they want their captors to pay for what they've done. So if we think about these kind, and this is just an example of the kind of story that we see sitting within the text, and, you know, what do we do with all of this? I mean, I think we can understand that feeling, but we probably don't want to say, yes, yes, this is a God's word to us right now, um, to say, yes. We want to talk about dashing the infant children of our enemies against the rocks. So if we think about these kinds of stories, about these stories of violence and of war, think about the meaning you make if you try to read it literally or if you try to take it as this kind of instruction manual. And uh, there are probably at least four general options that Christians tend to take when reading these kinds of stories, at least in my experience of Christianity. Uh, and of the Christian tradition. So one approach is to read many of these stories and to take it, take this kind of story as an instruction for your own ethics. In other words, you could endorse violence against the other, whether that's the religious other or the ethnic other or whatever, whatever it might be. Because you look at these texts and you say, see, this is what God wants. This is what the people of God does. This is what the, the word of God, the Bible tells us uh, and holds up for us as a model. And so uh, you see this kind of behavior uh, carried out uh, at times throughout the history of Christianity. And even if you think about the Crusades 
and whatever you want to say about the complexity of the politics of the Crusades and all of that kind of stuff, ultimately there's there's something here being shaped by this idea that it's okay to exterminate and eliminate the religious and ethnic other. Uh, and so as the Christians went on the Crusades to try and fight for the Holy Land and wipe out the, the rising uh, religion of Islam and its followers, you know, you see that kind of attitude being up, upheld, being supported, laid on the foundation of a certain reading of, of the scriptural text uh, and then throw in another bad reading of the New Testament and say, well, it's the, you know, as, as Christians did in these times, to say then it was the Jewish people's fault that Christ was murdered and so on the way back for the, from the Crusades uh, to make themselves feel better, they would, you know, usually wipe out a population of Jewish people that they would bump into along the way. And so here you've got this incredibly troubling uh, activity and behavior, this violence and murder being carried out by people and their ethic has to, at least in some way been shaped by a certain reading of the text. So that's one option which has some pretty troubling outcomes. Another option is that you might um, allegorize it. You turn it into these allegories and so that's what some of the early church fathers did where they took these stories of war and of violence and they said instead what was happening is we're not supposed to read these as endorsement of that kind of violence ourselves, but we read them as allegories, as metaphorical stories where maybe war is, is an allegory for something and uh, the kind of maybe it's for our victory over sin or over the devil or something like that. Uh, and so you can do that kind of thing. Uh, I certainly spent... You know, many I used to play. Well, I, I do play music. Uh, I'm a musician and spent many years playing kind of worship music within a church context, where we would often read ancient war stories from the Old Testament, where they would send out the musicians in front of the army, uh, and we would use that as a kind of metaphor for what it was that we were doing, playing music in the church, where we were going out in front of the army. But we didn't mean literally like we were going into violent battle, but we had some higher, it had become an, an allegorical meaning for us, uh, or even a spiritualized meaning for us. So you can also spiritualize these stories. And so maybe just as they fought these battles against their enemies in the Old Testament, so we too fight our battles, but they're against some kind of spiritual power or spiritual force, or maybe our enemy is the devil in some kind of way. I remember singing, there's a song we used to sing called, um, So I Went to the Enemy's Camp. And I took back what he stole from me. And uh, if you're not from the Christian tradition at all, or from, uh, say, Pentecostal charismatic Christianity, you might think, I'm sounding a little bit crazy. Uh, but anyway, I'm just telling you how it was. I'm just telling you the song that we sung. And it was all about going to the enemy's camp and taking back what he stole from us, which is loosely based on this story in the Old Testament about King David, the king that I mentioned earlier, when... Uh, a whole lot of his women and children, while they were out fighting, uh, got taken captive. And so in the end, they round up some guys and go off to get their women and children and property back. Um, great. Which is nice, and partly because taking the women from them was dishonouring to these men because their property was being taken. But anyway, more about that in the next episode. Um... All of that to say that this idea of King David going back to get the things that have been stolen from him has then turned into some kind of spiritual message for people now where maybe our enemy is the devil and the devil has um, maybe taken certain things from us, whether it be our joy or our prosperity or whatever it might be, and we want to spiritually 
go to and grab it back somehow, maybe through prayer or some kind of passionate worship or devotion to God. So on the one hand, you can take it as an instruction for your ethics and endorse your own kind of violence, or you can allegorize it or spiritualize it in some kind of way, um, which you'd have to say is a better option than the first, than actually endorsing your own kind of tribal violence. Um, but there's still maybe some problems with it overall. Or you could say, well, that's how it used to be, and this is something else that happens within uh, Christianity and its reading of these texts. Uh, that's how things were back then. And, and actually, when you do the research, these were very bad people that got killed. And so the killing of them was kind of justified in some kind of way because they were really, really awful. So that's one way of making sense of it. You know, these people sacrificed their children to the gods or whatever it might have been, and so they needed to be wiped out. Uh, yeah, but there's a bit of a logical and ethical problem with wiping out people and all their children because they sacrificed their children, right? Um, or maybe you might say, and this certainly is said within the church as well, well, that was before the time of Jesus, and so because Jesus dies on our behalf, now we no longer kill people like that, whereas it used to be the right approach, but now it's not. Um, but that still fundamentally says something about God that's kind of troubling. Uh, so that's why we're going to look at, in a few episodes' time, we're actually going to look a little bit about how we interpret the death of Jesus and what that means. Okay, all of that to say, there are some different ways of trying to negotiate your way around these texts so that either they can endorse your own kind of violence, which is perhaps what used to happen more often, but more frequently now, ways of reading these texts that help us to kind of miss the confronting, violent, uh, horrific, terrorizing nature of these texts and somehow uh, turn them into some kind of spiritual message or, or something like that. Um, but all of these options leave you with a Bible and with a God who at some stage at least was okay with and even endorses this kind of violence. And the language of your faith, even if you don't want to literally follow in the footsteps of some of these Old Testament wars and warriors, uh, language can still carry that violence inherently within it, even if you don't think of it as being explicitly violent. So even think about in the modern day church, it's been, it's been very common in the last hundred years or so, although perhaps less so now as people, people are starting to become a bit more sensitive to this. But it was very common for evangelism events, you know, where, uh, and Billy Graham's ones are a classic example of this, you know, the, that famous North American evangelist uh, who would hold these meetings where he would preach the gospel and, and make a call for people to convert to Christianity so that they might be saved from hell. Um, and these meetings themselves were called crusades. Uh, I live in New Zealand, and Billy Graham came here in 1959. I wasn't around, of course, but um, 1959, you know, hundreds of thousands of people going to these meetings, these Billy Graham crusades, uh, which were ultimately not about violence. They were about conversion and evangelism. And yet the name that's being used for them has been drawn from this ancient story of the crusades in the Middle Ages, and that's a problem. Right? because it says something fundamental about the worldview that sits beneath it. Okay, so what do we do with all of this? So, um, we're going to tackle the way that God is implicated in these stories in another episode, uh, as I said. So in a couple of episodes' time, we're going to talk specifically about divine violence, the violence of God in the texts. 
Uh, but for now, I want to suggest a few things that might help us to think about what's happening here with this kind of tribal violence that we see, with the warring and fighting that goes on between these people groups, between the heroes of some of these texts and what we do with that. So the first thing I want to say, and this gets a little bit to the heart of how we even approach the Bible itself, is, is to suggest that we get away from the idea of the Bible as some kind of instruction manual. You know, when I was younger uh, in youth group, I think I heard the, um, the old phrase of, you know, take the letters B-I-B-L-E and it's basic instructions before leaving earth. There are so many problems with the theology of that cute little saying. Uh, <laughs> firstly, Christianity is not about leaving the earth and secondly, the Bible is not a book of instructions. So there's a couple of key problems with that. Um, <laughs> so I want to suggest it's not supposed to be just a book of instructions and principles for living. You know, you don't just open the Bible and go, right, give me a principle, give me a rule, give me an instruction. Uh, that's not really what it's supposed to be. But these ancient writings come to us as resources for wisdom rather than these composed rules for life. Um, which means that when we read of an ancient figure or of an ancient battle or an ancient warrior or an ancient king who was famous for chopping people's heads off, whatever it might be, the first inclination we have doesn't have to be, oh, right, okay, this means that whatever they did is right and we should do it too. Even if the way the story is told celebrates them in a hero, as a hero. So if we were to just read it as this kind of instruction manual, then we open those stories, we see a model for our own lives. Um, but if we see these stories fitting within the context of a collection of writings that offer us some wisdom, if we're willing to wrestle with all of that, uh, then maybe there's some other options available to us. So that's the first point. Secondly, it's also helpful to note that some of these texts, you know, in, in the ancient world, when they would write this kind of history for themselves, uh, they would often, and, and remember, many of these texts are written uh, or compiled well after the fact. So... A lot of the texts telling these stories are actually compiled once they're in exile in Babylon. And so they're this nation that has been overrun and oppressed, as we talked about earlier. And, um, and it's at this time that they go back and they collect together these stories, uh, many of them oral traditions that have been passed down. Um, but it's, it's most likely, and what often would happen in, in the, this kind of collection of stories, is that you idealize the stories in some kind of way. So when we look at the archaeological evidence, for example, uh, of the ancient Near East, it does suggest to us that the widespread kind of genocide that's recorded in the Old Testament, for example, in the conquest of Canaan, are uh, quite likely exaggerated. Um, and in fact, that's even obvious in the biblical text at times, right? So they go in and wipe out every man, a woman and child in a particular area, and yet not too long later in the story, they're bumping into men, women and children from the area. So... There's this kind of um, hyperbole or exaggeration that's sometimes used to pump up their own kind of victory and devotion to God and loyalty. And when you're pulling these stories together, when you've just been absolutely annihilated by this foreign enemy who's destroyed your homeland, perhaps that kind of makes some sense. They are an ancient people trying to tell their story in some kind of way. Uh, to emphasize their identity and who they are, and even narrating some times when they were faithful to God, they were absolutely victorious. But when they compromised their devotion to God, that's when things would go bad. So you can see them trying to make sense of their history here. Uh, and so if we're to think about this as an insight of, you know, if this is a part of a collection of books that offer us wisdom 
rather than just divine instruction or a set of divine instructions. What if we were to read these kinds of violent stories as a commentary, a wisdom commentary on the human psyche and on the human condition itself? There's this insight into our age-old struggle with our ego, with competition, with the fear of otherness, and the way people have always integrated these fears and these drivers with their religious beliefs and their sense of identity and their view of God. You know, if we, if we step aside from biblical text in particular for a moment and we think about early human civilization, well, then part of the survival mechanisms of ancient people groups is to form these communities of belonging because it's those groups, it's those communities, those tribes of belonging that enable you to protect one another and to survive in harsh um, in a harsh world, you know, that's an advantage to have that sense of intense belonging in your group, in your tribe. That's how you get by. And so deeply integral to the human psyche in, in our brain, something that uh, offers us a survival advantage is the need to meaningfully belong, to have your people and so to feel safe and secure and to be safer and secure. But part of the problem with this is that your sense of safety is defined by your competition with others. And so your identity is shaped both by the group you belong to, but then also those whom your group is defined against. So your sense of inness is created, or the intensity of your sense of safety and inness is, is created by the contrasting sense of outness that you give to others, that you place on others who are different from you. You know, think about when kids form clubs and treehouses and all the conversations are about who gets let in and who gets kept out. And the specialness of being in is made, you know, it's only special because of the fact that you keep people out, you know. There's no special thing to being in a club if everybody can be in the club. I guess that must be the trick to the Masons or something, you know. The, the reason you're special and in is because it's kind of secretive and only certain people can get in and only if they do certain things. So the specialness of inness is created by the fact that people are kept out. Because if everyone's special, then no one's special, at least in our fundamental human psyche. Um, and so competition between these different groups of belonging is a natural outcome of this kind of uh, fundamental uh, fact. And violence is a pretty natural response or a pretty natural outcome of this kind of reality because human beings are emerging in this world of competition and identity and resources. And at the same time, you've got this emergence of this, you've had this emergence of a fully-fledged human consciousness, you know, our self-awareness which is this mysterious, beautiful thing that poets and theologians talk about in some ways as the soul or as the spirit. Uh, evolutionary uh, scientists and psychologists you know, have all sorts of different names for it. Psychoanalysts have other names for it, but all trying to describe this unique and profound thing that is found within the human being, which is this emergence of self-awareness and consciousness uh, and self-reflection. And what it brings with it is the potential for great beauty and insight and creativity and thought and philosophy and understanding and love. But as well, what comes with this emergence of human consciousness is the tragic possibilities of jealousy and ego and destruction of self and others and violence and so on. And so as you've got these emerging human societies, you've also got this, this, this human, uh, the problem and the possibility of what it means to be human, uh, the possibility for beauty and creativity and love and joy and grace, and as well as the tragic possibilities of jealousy and violence and ego and destruction. 
And religion in that sense can essentially be adopted to, to, to play that same game. A sense of belonging in a religious community can be generated by the fact that we're in and other people are out. God is on our side, not theirs. That's certainly something you see when you read the Old Testament, right? God is on our side, not theirs, or at least the true God, the good God, the right God. And so when this is the way the world is, things like the anguish, despair, and desire for revenge that we see in that psalm that we read, Psalm 137, this poem, this ancient poem of grief and loss and tragedy, and then a desire for revenge and violence. This is a natural outcome of this human cycle of competition, uh, ego, and violence. And so on one level then, the Bible is this exposure to this fundamental human story. And one of the great things about the Bible (laughs) when you read it is it's not hidden or obscured at all. So normally what happens is we brush over those aspects of our story. We diminish those aspects and we hide them and we push them under the surface. Um, But the Bible is brutally honest about this human experience. And although portrayed sometimes willingly or even supported in the Bible, this kind of behavior is also challenged in other texts in the Bible. And so we especially start to see this emerge in some of the prophets in the nation of Israel as the story continues. And so some of these prophets begin to speak uh, against the cycles of oppression and violence and revenge. And then you have these stories that are are told as well. So think about there's the story uh, of the prophet Jonah, which is really this parable, perhaps we'll talk about Jonah another time, but it's this parable with this this confronting countercultural message hidden within it, well not hidden really, it would have been obvious to the hearers, and it tells the story of this figure, Jonah, it's, it's, it's a funny story really <laughs> in its own way, it's this ancient kind of humorous tragedy where this prophet is called by God to go and uh, prophesy God's judgment on Nineveh. And if you're an ancient Israel, well, then you know that Nineveh is your mortal enemy. Nineveh is known for all sorts of incredibly violent and just vile practices and have been responsible for all kinds of violence against your community and your family. And Jonah is told to go and prophesy judgment against the city, but he doesn't want to because he's worried that God is going to forgive them. And by the end of the story, you know, he gets swallowed by a whale along the way or a big fish. Uh, If you're familiar with that story, then you'll know it. Um, But in the end, that's in fact what does happen. He goes, he gives the worst uh, prophecy ever recorded in the Bible. It's like one sentence and it's not even very good. And he doesn't even offer them an out. He just says, you're all going to burn, basically. (laughs) Uh, And they all repent And they all turn to God and they all turn from their wicked ways. And Jonah ends the story upset because, in fact, what he feared would happen would happen, which is that these people were forgiven. And this stands as kind of parable. It's this confronting parable given to the nation of Israel. Um, You know, it's very unlikely that it's meant to be read as this kind of literal story. But it's this parable that confronts their, their othering of their enemy, their desire for revenge and for judgment, and instead says, well, maybe there's something, there's another way to see this story. So these kinds of texts emerge within the Old Testament tradition, and then ultimately in the Christian uh, tradition, this whole way of being is then undone by Jesus, right? 
So Jesus says things like, love your enemies in his famous Sermon on the Mount, which is just goes well against many of the ways we instinctively behave, especially for him in the first century when they're being ruled over by another oppressive empire, the Romans. And even when Jesus is killed and he's executed for his controversial spiritual teachings and his teachings of the kingdom of God that upset the religious people within his tradition and the political figures within the Roman world, as he has been killed, his claim, his father, his prayer is that God would forgive them for they know not what they do. And so we are exposed to this, within the story of Jesus, this criticism of the cycles of revenge and of violence. And instead of, you know, because the, the, the nation of Israel has been waiting for this king to come and rescue them, and they imagine he's going to be just like King David in the Old Testament. Uh, and Jesus offers them a different vision of what it might really mean And that's not one who takes up the cycle of bloodshed and of war and of violence. So so in that sense then, perhaps we could ask the question, why is it important to keep reading these stories? You know, if essentially what we do is we read the story and we go, okay, well, Jesus kind of undoes all that. Cool. I knew that anyway. I knew violence was bad. So sweet deal. I don't really need to engage in any of that. Well, you don't need to. No, not. There's no one standing over you with a gun telling you you have to read the Bible. Uh, I find the Bible quite hard to read sometimes, and I'm a theologian who's supposed to do it for a living. Uh, (laughs) But there is a sense in which it's important to keep reading these stories in some way or to keep thinking about them or considering them. Uh, Because they carry the history of a sacred tradition and a sacred history that reveal to us what humans are like. And also give us some insight into different ways of being in the world. And if we don't read these stories in the way that people have wrestled with the core insights of the human condition, and I think the way that spirituality can actually help move us outward from some of our core problems, then I think the mistake we make is that we easily start to think we're much better than them, right? We think we've outgrown these stories, these silly old violent stories, which are just brutal and horrible and awful. Why would we waste our time thinking about that? We're much better than that. But I don't know that we have outgrown them. Look at the world around us now, and for all of our civilization and modernity and technology and ethics and iPhones and podcasts, we're still fighting tribal wars of ego and competition. We're still afraid of people who aren't like us. We still live in a world where people are oppressed and marginalized for various kinds of otherness, whether it be ethnicity and race or economic class or political tribe or sexuality, all sorts of ways to justify the elimination of the different, of the other, the one who triggers fear in us, the one who makes us uncomfortable. And this doesn't just happen on a big systemic scale out there, lest we get ourselves off the hook too easily. It happens at a personal level for us too. And this is one of the insights of something like uh, the biblical wisdom tradition. If we think we've moved beyond the kind of world we see in these stories in the Bible, we trick ourselves into thinking we're actually doing better than we are. And we don't get to work thinking about what we need, what might be helpful to us, what might offer us different ways of being in the world. 
and the resources that a healthy spirituality might offer us too. Because we're actually wrestling with things now that people have been wrestling with for thousands of years because we're actually still the same fundamental creature for all of the shiny objects we've placed around us. And yes, for the wonderful tradition of uh, society and civilization and philosophy and theology that have informed us over the last few thousand years, as a creature, as a human being, we're still the same fundamental animal, right? Our brains are wired. Uh, we still have the same we're still driven by the same hormones and regulators and neurotransmitters and the same triggers. And so, um, it's, and so it's vital for us to recognize that, that we are the same fundamental creature and that in these sacred texts, perhaps there are some resources for us to look at the way in which uh, for many thousands of years now, human beings have wrestled with what it means to be human, with what we mean when we talk about God and with how spirituality might help us navigate a path forward. So if we ignore things like the Bible because of its violence, or we find ways to justify the violence that's there, either of those are a problem. One, we just ignore it and say, look, look at all that violence, that's gross. Or two, uh, look at all that violence, but these are all the reasons why it's fine. Both of those are serious problems. And in both cases, we're not set up, I think, to enter into the conversation about how we negotiate a way forward from these aspects of the human condition and the experience that we are still immersed in now. Uh, if you follow the trajectory of the story through the biblical text, you find that the ethics move. They follow a path. So you can't just dip in and out at any point, as we mentioned last time, and find the same way of seeing God or the world or ethics but you do find a tradition that is always wrestling with questions of God and human identity and community and behavior towards others. And although stories in the text are brutal in their acknowledgement and at times endorsement of tribal violence, we are also offered these different ways forward. And this you know, conveys to us and, and models for us this idea that the spiritual life is one of transformation. Uh, and so in the New Testament text, you know, we are offered all sorts of invitations to live differently in the world to, you know, Jesus says to love your enemies. At other times he says to pray for your enemies where you actually have to enter into uh, thinking about them as a human person, as a human being, and what's given shape to uh, the kind of person that they've become and why they've become that. Uh, Jesus talks about giving up your life in some kind of way to find it, which is about confronting this this. Um, drive for consumption and competition and uh, jealousy and domination that we so often find ourselves embracing. Uh, we find in the New Testament this, and in the Old Testament as well, this idea of the communal nature of human reality. And many of the letters that you have written in the, in the New Testament text, for example, aren't letters to individuals, although I was often trained to read them that way. You know, you pick up maybe Paul's letter to the Corinthians or whatever it might be, and you read it as this kind of personal letter to you as an individual, but that's not what they're supposed to be. They're letters to communities, and a lot of the time in these letters is spent drawing people together and asking them to put aside all of those things that they would typically identify as them as other to one another, uh, and it instead offers them ways, confronts them and offers them ways of actually learning to live together in harmony, not to deny the particularity of who they are but also not to let the sense of who they are be defined by being against others or excluding people who are not like them. We even find that this idea of that life in tune with the divine is one that is oriented toward virtues like love, including the love of enemies and of uh, love of the other, of kindness, of gentleness, of patience, of self-control, these virtues that can be antidotes 
to the gross imperialism and racism and tribalism and othering that so often grips the human condition. And so I think as we wrestle with these ideas, we find ourselves being confronted not with a list of do this and don't do that, but with the question, what kind of person do I want to become? And I think that a big part of healthy spirituality is about finding ways and resources to navigate a life that's living out that question. What kind of person do I want to become? So that's where we find ourselves at the end of this episode. A little bit heavy, eh? A little bit heavy, talking about violence. Well, two more episodes to go. Then we're on to the light stuff, because then we're on to three episodes about hell. (laughs) Oh, man. Ratcheting up the intensity in 2019. Um, but ultimately, I think these are like fundamental questions about the human experience, and so I think we need to explore them. Well, I, I, I need to, and you're along for the ride if you're listening. So in the next episode, as I mentioned, we're going to look specifically at the way patriarchal violence features in the biblical texts and what do we do with this. So that's going to be next time on In The Shift. I'll see you then.